first, we kick it off with COVID-19. Another big number of new cases in British Columbia announced yesterday by Dr. Bonnie Henry. Here she is. From Friday to Saturday, we had uh, 713 new cases of COVID-19. Saturday to Sunday, an additional 626 new cases. And from Sunday to day, uh, 594 for a total of 1,933 new cases of COVID-19 over the past weekend. Okay, the numbers continue to be rough here as the second wave of the virus continues to wash over British Columbia. All right, check this out. How many people say they have caught COVID at work and have filed for workers' compensation coverage? This is really interesting. In British Columbia, most recent numbers here, 1,589 British Columbians have filed for workers' comp saying they caught COVID at work. Now, how many of those cases have actually been allowed by WorkSafe BC? Just 506. So about two-thirds of the cases so far not accepted for coverage by WorkSafe BC. This is very interesting, and I think you may see more of this in the days ahead. Okay, let's talk about that now with my guest, Leah Moody, a Vancouver employment lawyer, managing partner at Samfiro Tumarkin LLP. I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Hi, Leah. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot for coming on. So if a person gets sick with COVID at work, and if they can prove it, are they eligible for workers' compensation pre, um, money? Yes, but I mean, the the middle of your sentence there is the key part, if yeah. they can prove it. And right. that is the big variable here. And probably why two-thirds of cases, as you just said, uh, haven't been accepted uh, through WorkSafe. Okay. Uh, what do you have to do to prove it? Let's say you get you catch COVID, you're off work, you file a workers' comp claim. What is the next step there? Do you then have to prove that you caught it on the job? Yeah. So, I mean, essentially, right, when we're talking about catching COVID on the job, right, we're talking really about what's essentially just an expansion of an existing obligation that your employers have, and that's to keep the workplace safe, right? Every employer in BC has a legal obligation to keep its workplace safe and hazard-free, and that includes, of course, with respect to injury and exposure to illness. But there's a reason why you don't see workers' comp claims for catching a common cold or a flu, right? And I'm certainly not saying that COVID is the same as a common cold or a flu. Obviously, the consequences are considerably more severe, but the transmission is very similar, right? In that uh, it's very difficult to pinpoint, you know, Sally in HR gave me COVID, whereas, you know, with an injury, you you can see, um, you know, with your own eyes and ears, that you lost your finger on the on the mill saw, right? Right, so right. In order to in order to prove, uh, you know, that you're entitled to some sort of compensation under workers' comp, I think that first and foremost, you need to be able to establish that your employer wasn't following some sort of protocol. I think that there's right. going to be a general understanding and appreciation of the fact that um, at the end of the day, you can, we can only go so far in our prevention, right? We can't, we can't guarantee that you're not going to get COVID in the workplace. Right. But if your employer isn't, you know, putting up plexiglass where it's necessary, if they're not now enforcing the mandatory mask policy in common areas among workers, um, you know, all of that good stuff that we've had drilled into our heads over the last eight, nine, ten months, uh, then that is going to create exposure for the employer, 
So first you've got to show that, and then you've actually got to show, and this is where I, I don't know how you do this, but you have to show that you didn't get it at the grocery store. You didn't get yeah. it from your kid going to school. You have to show that you got it from work. And the only situation that I can sort of envision is, you know, let's Sally in HR uh, shares a cubicle with you. Uh, she tested positive for COVID two weeks ago. It's not reported by your workplace. They know that Sally was ill. Uh, oh. She's not encouraged to take time off and there's no plexiglass in between your cubicles and then you get sick. That to me certainly would indicate uh, that there's a good likelihood that you caught COVID in that situation. But at the end of the day, it's really just going to be circumstantial. Right. I can see how that could be a very tall hill to climb for people who are trying to prove a claim like that. My guest is Leah Moody. She is a Vancouver employment lawyer. So let's say you are successful with your claim. You say that you caught COVID at work. Your your uh, claim is accepted by WorkSafe BC. Uh, what are you then eligible for? Are you uh, lost income or... Yeah, well, that's, I mean, that's essentially the question as well, is what damages did you sustain? Right. right? So if you are then, you can imagine that at a minimum, people who are test positive for COVID and are required to be at home are going to miss out on, you know, for the 10 days or two weeks of of income. Um, And assuming there's no paid sick leave and that that individual doesn't take vacation and that they've actually sustained damages, um, then that's something that you can pursue is that lost income. In very, very... The worst case scenarios, if, you know, somebody is hospitalized and they have to pay out of pocket for certain medication that they might need or, uh, you know, uh, home care for their kids because they're a single parent and they're in hospital, uh, you know, then you can see the damages really sort of ratchet up. But that's probably going to be uh, only in very exceptional and rare cases. Okay. Do you think with COVID cases on the rise here during the second wave of the virus, do you think there'll be more claims to WorkSafe BC along these lines? Absolutely. I mean, I think that right now we're entering into our second phase, right? And I think that to the extent that everybody was able to survive the first bout of this pandemic in the springtime, right, through going through their savings, we just haven't had enough time to build up that nest egg again, right? And so you've got a lot of people who are, again, finding themselves in difficult positions at work, uh, can't afford to take even two weeks off, and so I think you've got a lot of individuals who are going to be taking to Google, who are going to be calling, you know, their, their local employment lawyer and trying to figure out, OK, what avenues are available to me in any respect to be compensated for the time off of work? And, and I might as well try. Right. OK, real quickly, Leah, and then I'll t- we'll take a break and take some phone calls here. You, got, you guys at Sam Firo Law, you do a great job in advising people on what their options are, especially during this pandemic. I think it's been so crucial. What kind of... Um, assistance and government programs are still available to people out there like the CERB is over now right like you can't get CERB anymore is that correct that's right so that ended I think at the end of um, September I know that employment insurance uh, that legislation has been expanded pretty significantly to uh, to you know cover a lot of the gig economy that has really exploded over the last couple of years so people who are technically self-employed there is another emergency response benefit that you can apply to uh, and my understanding is that the Canadian emergency wage subsidy is still available as well. Uh, and hopefully the provincial government steps in uh, some more additionally as well. All right. Welcome back. As we continue talking about COVID-19 at work, what kind of help is available for people if you're off the job? My guest is Leah Moody. She's a Vancouver employment lawyer. She works with Samfiru Law. Your calls to her 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898. Toll free on your cell. Let's go to Paul on the open line of Vancouver. Hiya, Paul. 
Um, hey, how's it going? Good. Good, yeah. So I was working at uh, YVR end of February till the middle of March. Uh, we were basically removing debris uh, over night shift from some offices that were being demoed. Uh, the CBS wouldn't let us wear our PPE when we were walking through the terminal. People were flying out. Cathay Pacific, Air India. Uh, my last day of work was Friday the 13th in the morning. Called my boss on the, on the Saturday. Said, I'm not going into work because it's unsafe. On the 15th, the government said shelter in place. There's nowhere really to get te- tested. Self-isolate if you think you've been exposed. About the 19th to 20th, I got as sick as a dog. I'm just back to work now. I was off for since March. Did you, te- did, you test po- te- did you test positive for COVID? There was nowhere to get tested back then. It was very, very limited. And they said, don't go to your doctor if you think you got it. Don't go to the hospital unless you think you're going to die. So I have really had nowhere to turn. Uh, how long were you off work? I just started last week. Wow, it's a long time. Well, I, yeah, I, I'm very sorry I to hear that. Taste, couldn't smell, you know, had diarrhea. I lost about 22 pounds. Total wow. lethargy. Like, this is a real deal. But, you know, I, I guess I could go get tested for the antibodies now. Right? Okay. But we were what's literally what's walking... Wh- What's your question? Oh, I'm just wondering, you know, I guess it's too too far away removed to possibly file for compensation. Okay, hey, Leah. I got it back in the first wave in March. So Yeah, right. Leah, what do you think? Yeah, no, I mean, I don't think that it's too late. And I think that to the extent that certain protocols weren't being followed, right, with respect to PPE, if those mandates were in place at the time, that's still an important complaint to make. Whether or not you are going to get compensation from it, I do think that employees in BC have the right, but also the responsibility to be a bit of a whistleblower in situations like this, right? If your employer is not letting you wear a mask for whatever reason, yeah. or they aren't, you know, providing you with the, uh, the ability to, to keep yourself as safe as possible in accordance with the provincial mandate, then you should report that to WorkSafe um, so that they can correct it and make sure that nobody else gets sick. But yes, in accordance with that, you know, if you were sick and, and you did miss out on income and time away, uh, then it's possible that you could bring a claim. So, now, yeah, if, so he should if, just fi- he should just file. I mean, you got nothing to lose by by filing it, I suppose, or do you? No, absolutely. You have yeah. nothing to lose by filing it. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think that um, if, if, the, if your company was shut down anyway, right, if you would have been on a temporary layoff anyway, then it's going to be difficult to make the argument that you sustained damage. But you also just said that you've been, you only returned to work this past week. So I'm yeah. sure that there's a loss of income claim in there somewhere. And exactly as Mike said, you know, there's no harm in trying. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for the call. I'm gl- uh, glad you're feeling better. Uh, and I hope, I hope things go better for you. Thanks for the call. Lisa in Vancouver. Hi, Lisa. Uh, hi. Can you hear me? I'm driving on my car. Yeah, I can hear you. Go ahead. Uh, oh, okay. Hi. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm about my 24-year-old son who lives at home with us. He was laid off from his employment in March, sort of when this all happened. And so he applied and had, was um, eligible for the CERB, and he got the CERB for the number of months that he was allowed to. But yeah. that ended in September, which actually just coincidentally coincided with him starting at BCIT, which was already, he was already registered for his program. But now during the months that he has been at BCIT, of course, he hasn't been on CERB, but he's concerned or we're all concerned about what kind of employment um, EI kind of stuff he might be eligible 
for if he doesn't get work after coming out of his BCIT program. It's a six-month program, and hmm. you don't know if he's hmm. even going to get work. Is he, like, full-time at school? He's full-time at school yeah. for six months. Okay. Uh, Leah? Yeah, well, first of all, did he receive severance? Well, no, because um, he was only working piecemeal for a, um, like, on-call kind of uh, part-time job. I don't think he had enough hours. Okay, we got oh, about a minute, minute left, Leah. What do you think? Sure, but let me just be absolutely clear on that point. Um, it doesn't matter if you're working piecemeal, part-time, whatever. If you're working for a company and then you're laid off and you're not recalled, you are entitled to severance. So first and foremost, he should pursue his severance entitlement. Second, there is the Canada Recovery Benefit, which if you are missing out on employment going forward, you can still get uh, some amount of money that's comparable to the, to the old CERB program. Okay, good luck with that, Lisa. Thanks for calling in. Let's see if we can squeeze one more in here. Simon in Maple Ridge. Simon, you got to go quick, though, okay? Oh, yeah, you no problem. Um, go ahead. So I think this, this entire discussion is opening Pandora's box. If, as a society, we, we want to have future ec uh, economic opportunities. Um, you know, looking for WCB to cover, uh, you know, infectious disease in, in this, where it's just really, really not much different than the flu. I mean, it's just extending it to so many different avenues in life. And if we want future for our children, for, you know, economic opportunities, jobs in the future, we have to take personal responsibility. And obviously, well, well what, if what if your boss is negligent and you catch COVID as a result of the negligence, negligence of your employer? We're extending the definition of gross negligence into ways that's uncharted. Okay, Leah, we just got 30 seconds left. What would you say to that, about that? I, I mean, I think that, um, that I, I see your point, right? And I yeah. absolutely think that we have to do what we can to keep the economy running and functional. We cannot rely on all of these systems or else they're right. going to crack under the pressure. But at the end of the day, employers have an obligation to keep the workplace safe. And if right. they failed in that obligation, then they, then they need to pay for it. They need yeah. to be held accountable for it. Right. And that includes with respect to uh, illnesses. Leah, thank you for coming on today. Thank you, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk to the new interim leader of the B.C. Liberal Party now. Very pleased to welcome Shirley Bond. She is the six-term MLA for <laughs> Prince George. And uh, uh, congratulations on your re-election there in Prince George, and congratulations on your new appointment as interim leader of the Liberal Party. Well, thank you, Mike, uh, and it's good to be back chatting with you. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for making the time. Now, let's make uh, very clear here off the bat. So you are the interim leader of the party, so that means that you are you will do this job on a temporary basis mm -hmm. until a new leader is chosen, correct? Yeah, that's exactly right, yeah. and I'm glad that you clarified that because I think there's an important distinction here. We have a job to do in the short term as we work our way to uh, to finding a, a new and, and permanent leader for the, the, the B.C. Liberal Party. So, yeah, it's uh, as you point out, it's a temporary position. There's lots of work to do. Uh, I'm excited to work with a great caucus, but it, it is uh, just what the word says. It, it will be a uh, likely fairly short-term position. Right. And when will the, the permanent leader, if we put it that way, be chosen by the party? Mm -hmm. Well, that's a great question, and I mean, we have some work to do before we actually get to the place of, of having a leadership campaign. So we're going to engage in a couple of things. The party's already laid out some initial steps. We're going to take a look at what happened in the election, uh, so a specific analysis of, of what happened and, and, and what, what did we do right, what could we have done better, 
then we're going to have a more broad-based discussion uh, with our, our members, our supporters, and, and British Columbians to say, you know, what is it that we need to look like? What, are, what do we need to do in order to restore confidence and, and hopefully uh, restore us to government? So, Mike, the, no, no specific date, but there's a lot of work to do before we get to the actual launch of the leadership campaign. Right. So I imagine this is going into obviously into the new year. And I, I suppose mm-hmm. there'd be a, a window in the spring for a, a leadership process. Or do you anticipate it could go even longer than that and go deeper into the new year? Yeah, candidly, I think we're going to see a, a longer process than that. I yeah. think, you know, we, we, we have to take some time here and we have to listen. We need to listen and learn. Uh, we obviously, uh, the number of MLAs we have was was not what we had hoped for. Um, and, you know, I think British Columbians are, are asking us, us some pretty serious questions and, and they want to provide feedback. So, Mike, I, I want to make sure that, you know, and obviously the party will outline the actual process, but we need time to do that and time right. to listen, time to learn, adjust. And then we hopefully will attract a really broad, diverse range of candidates. And I think it's an amazing opportunity for the party. So uh, I'm looking forward to it. In the meantime, we have to concentrate on getting ready to be an effective opposition. Right, speaking to Shirley Bond, she uh, named yesterday as the interim leader of the B.C. Liberal Party, leader of the opposition at, at the legislature. Let's just talk a little bit about this election right now, because this was just a, a disastrous election for the Liberals. I mean, you're, the share of the Liberal popular vote went down across all regions of the province. You lost a, a, just a ton of seats in areas of the province that have been considered kind of safe Liberal strongholds in the past. I mean, even places like the Fraser Valley, Chilliwack, Langley, North Shore, Richmond, even some seats in the interior. I mean, this is just unthinkable. The Liberals are losing these seats that you held on to for so long. What went wrong here? How come this happened? Well, Mike, that's exactly why we're going to engage in, in a process that asks those tough and often uncomfortable questions. You know, we, we need to make sure that we find ways to better resonate, uh, not just in urban British Columbia, but all across the province of, of B.C., uh, and I think the other thing, we do, we do need to provide some context here, though. It was a snap election. It was called yeah. during a pandemic. And, you know, uh, no, not that I'm making excuses because that, that's not my style, but, but we should be clear, you know, unusual circumstances. And if you look in other jurisdictions around the world, governments that have led through the pandemic tend to be successful. And so, you know, John Horgan is a smart person and he's got smart people in his office. And, and, and frankly, uh, they took advantage of, a, of an opportunity that would see them be in government for four years. Does that mean that, you know, we don't have some responsibility? Of course not. And that's why we're going to take the time that's necessary to ask those hard questions. You know, why didn't our message resonate? Why did we lose some fantastic MLAs? And I mean, I, I felt very sad about that. There's some great people that we had on our, our, our slate of candidates that won't be with us in Victoria. And, and I'm, I'm sad, disappointed about that. But we're prepared to be transparent and ask yeah. some tough questions. Okay, would the tough questions include just how deeply damaged the Liberal Party brand is here after this, this experience? Like, there's some thought that maybe the Liberal Party should change its name. What do you think of that? Well, I'm, I'm certainly not going to be presumptuous about whether or not we need a name change or not, but can I tell you we've heard that? Of course. And, and those are the exact questions that we need to take the time to have a discussion about. You know, I, I think people do want to have that conversation, and I think it's an important one. So, you know, the party is going to be responsible for laying out that process that says, 
you know what we have to we have to we have to dig deep here and we have to you know have that transparent conversation that says what went wrong and what are the key elements of rebuilding and restoring the party. Right. I should say, Mike, and I do want to say, you know, we, we've made some important steps. I'm really excited. You know, Stephanie Kedju was, uh, was elected yesterday as our caucus chair. She's going to help us as we work our way through some of these issues. We have brand new candidates, you know. We, we, have, a, we, have, we have some young new candidates. We have some, some incredibly talented people. So we've made some good steps, but is there more work to be done? Right. Absolutely. You take over the party here at obviously a difficult time in the party's history. You've just gone through a really bad, you know, troublesome election campaign. Uh, there was a bit of a backlash against former leader Andrew Wilkinson. And notably, your, your former colleague Jane Thornthwaite wrote a, a blistering public editorial uh, attacking Andrew Wilkinson's leader of the party, basically portrayed him as a, a sexist bully at the top of the Liberal Party. Mm-hmm. Is this... You know, is there a problem with the the culture of this party at the very top of the Liberal Party with sexism, bullying? Is has that kind of stuff been going on? Do you see that as a problem? Well, here's what I can tell you. First of all, anyone who steps up uh, to serve the public, I, I have I have respect for. And you know, Andrew has stepped aside to allow us to first of all do an analysis, look back for a little bit, and figure out what happened. And then we're going to concentrate on looking forward. So here's what I can tell you, Mike. Uh, I have spent my entire career looking at how we are inclusive and how we work to create an environment and a culture that allows people to speak up, to stand up, to say what they need to say, to have the respect uh, of, the, of the room when those things happen. So, you know, my job as, as uh, you know, in the role that I've been given is to make sure that that's the kind of room we have. And I have every confidence the 28 people that are in that room uh, are committed to working with one another. They're united. I mean, we've just gone through an election. We've gone through a process yesterday. And the key message coming out of there was, you know, we're going we're gonna to be a team, a strong team. And, you know, there's no place for intolerance. There's no place for that, you know, for a bullying uh, mentality. So I'm looking forward. We're going to create that kind of space. I am hopeful. And I'm looking forward to working with my colleague, Stephanie Kedju, as together. And when I announce the other leadership team members, uh, we're going to work to create that kind of space, Mike. Uh, That's a priority for me. Speaking of Shirley Bond, she uh, just named as the interim leader of the B.C. Liberal Party. The Liberals have traditionally, in, in the sort of the political landscape of the province, has been kind of the, the free enterprise party, as they call it. Mm-hmm. We seem to be entering into a new era of big government, big spending, massive deficits. The deficit in British Columbia is around $13 billion. It was just unthinkable before this uh, pandemic. Do you see that as any kind of a challenge that, you know, that you have got a big spending government in power here now. Should that be a priority for the Liberal Party in saying like there's a, there's a different way we can do this? Well, uh, of course, we're going to be paying attention to the economic side of the agenda, and I don't think that will be any surprise to you. You know, our our first and most important priority is looking at the health and wellness of British Columbians, and so you know it is understandable that and we as a, as a as a opposition came together with the government along with the Green Party to immediately support the kinds of resources that were necessary to to provide uh, you know the the uh, support to families and businesses in British Columbia there's no doubt we supported that it was unanimous but we do need to be looking ahead and thinking about how are we going to manage 
from an economic perspective while we deal with a healthcare crisis, not to mention the fact that we have the issue of the opioid crisis and numerous other issues related to housing, all of those things. So yes, we're going to continue to ask the hard questions about the economy, but it won't be at the expense about, of, of caring for families in this province. It doesn't matter where you live. If you're working hard, you're trying to feed your family and care for them, you're worried about COVID, you're worried about school, you're worried about all of these things, obviously those things matter. And British Columbians sent that message to us, that we needed to be compassionate and caring. But I can assure you that paying attention to the economy is important to us. It will continue to be important. And I know that we're going to have some vigorous debates about that in the weeks ahead. Okay, we continue to follow it very, very closely here, and we'll see how it goes in the days ahead. And I thank you very much for your time. Thanks for coming on this morning. You're most welcome. I look forward to future chats. Thanks so much. You bet. All right, welcome back to the show. Have you put up your Christmas lights at home this year? It seems like a lot of British Columbians are getting set to go early this year, getting up the lights, getting up the decorations. I'll tell you what, our family is all in on this. Seems like a very popular idea. British Columbians spending more on their holiday displays this year. It's keeping one local company very busy. Our show contributor, John Jang, now has more. Hey, good morning, Mike. It's nice to share some good news that are happening as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, Certainly, it feels like we just don't get enough of these stories, but I do have one for you today. A local company based out of Richmond is now looking to hire lots of extra help for the holiday season as they are now in hot demand. So for more on this, I'm now joined by the owner of Festalites. His name is Daniel Cowan. And Daniel, uh, your business has seen an increase of 40% new customers who want Christmas lights set up at home or on residential properties. And that's exciting because we're still here in late November. So it looks like things are really starting to boom for you guys over there. Yeah, it has been booming. Uh, we've actually are experiencing the most demand we've ever experienced. Uh, I've been in this for about 11 years. Um, and we've we've taken a lot of um, staff from industries that have completely tanked. Uh, we've got a number of pilots working for us. Um, we've taken uh, people from you know other similar tourism industries and that have really struggled, and and they're able to get some great and, and meaningful work with us uh, to last them through this uh, this downturn. Um, no. And it's uh, people are, are really and fortunately the demand is there and. Um, and a lot of people are installing their lights quite early this year. Now, this can't be a coincidence. Uh, this morning, BC Hydro released a report saying that 90% of British Columbians will be spending more this year on elaborate Christmas light displays. So it just seems to reaffirm exactly what you're telling me here. It is, yeah. It is exactly what's happening. Um, it, and people it, it need a little bit of positivity right now. Um, and they're finding that uh, Christmas lights is uh, is a real great way to do it. It can be observed from you know the safety of outside or from inside your car. Um, so it's uh, it's fitting really well right now with our environment. Now, as mentioned, you are looking for some extra help as your business is pretty much the hot ticket in town. So for those listening who are thinking about you know, looking for some seasonal work, uh, what are some things they should know about? Obviously, you know, first off, they should probably feel pretty comfortable working with heights and getting up on a ladder. Yeah, and they've got to be comfortable uh, working outside in the, the cold, wet weather. Um, obviously, uh, we work in some pretty horrid conditions. 
Um, and the, uh, they also have to have a really good attention to, to detail. Um, we like, we can make a really ugly looking tree look absolutely fantastic at nighttime. Um, and so that's really important for us as well. And I'm curious here, uh, what's the most elaborate display you've put on for somebody this year? You know, I never had this at my home, but I do know the singing lights are always really popular. So uh, have you had any of those or other stories you can share with us today? So, yeah, I mean, I would say our most elaborate display would be Burnaby Village Museum. And it's actually really unfortunate we found out just yesterday with the new announcements from the province that they're actually uh, canceling, at least until December 7th, um, that public display so uh, we're not too sure uh, it's a little bit heartbreaking for us because we spend quite a bit of time putting up this display and, and uh, there's a potential that nobody's going to be able to see it I haven't even had the, the heart to tell our staff that worked on it yet um, but uh, we're hoping that things will change and that you know maybe they can open up again after that date uh, but uh, for that sort of display um, there's you know tens and thousands of, of lights, um, various colors, lots of unique structures uh, on display there. And it's a, it's a big favorite in town for, um, for Christmas light displays. Before we get out of here, I wanted to get your thoughts on the story out of North Vancouver yesterday where homeowners were potentially facing a new bylaw where you had to turn off Christmas lights and all displays by 11 p.m. Otherwise, there's the possibility you could be facing a fine. Obviously, we know now that the motion has been denied and everyone can rest easy, take a deep breath. But what, were you, what was your reaction when you heard that story? Because that's all of your hard work that unfortunately can't be enjoyed past 11 o'clock every night. Yeah, I, I did read that yesterday as well. I believe it was the district of North Bend, and it was. Uh, uh, I, I think there's bigger problems <laughs> to be handled right now um, than that, and I think that was definitely a good move, especially PR-wise, <laughs> to overturn that. Um, yeah, if, if the lights are, you know, I, I understand if somebody puts some lights right up in front of someone else's window, um, but uh, in most cases, I, I don't. I don't think it's a big problem in the city, so I'm glad that was overturned. He's Daniel Cowan, the owner of Festa Lights, and if you're looking for some seasonal work or if you want to get your home decorated, you're encouraged to visit the website festalights.ca. Daniel, thank you so much for your time here this morning. Yeah, thank you for having us. All right, welcome back to the show. Here we go now with the Great Reset. Have you heard about this? I think this is fascinating. The Great Reset. This is a campaign to effectively overhaul economic systems in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. The Great Reset. It's an idea that's been advanced largely by the World Economic Forum in Switzerland. The founder and the executive chairman there, Klaus Schwab, uh, he has written a book about this, The Great Reset. They've got a website there at the World Economic Forum about this initiative. And Man, man you want to talk about a big agenda here. This is about overhauling global relations, national economies, the priorities of societies. Just reading from their website. The nature of business models. The management of global resources. Yeah, this is a big agenda. The Great Reset. Now, listen to this. Here's Justin Trudeau. Uh, this is Trudeau speaking last week to the United Nations in a, in a virtual teleconference. And you hear him use the R word here. They got everybody excited. Trudeau, last week. Have a listen. Building back better 
means giving support to the most vulnerable while maintaining our momentum on reaching the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development and the SDGs. Canada is here to listen and to help. This pandemic has provided an opportunity for a reset. This is our chance to accelerate our pre-pandemic efforts to reimagine economic systems that actually address global challenges like extreme poverty, inequality, and climate change. Okay, opportunity for a reset. Yeah, interesting. A great reset. You also heard him talk there about reimagining economies. What is this all about? Let's talk about this now. we got a great panel for you. Peter McCartney is on the line. He's a climate campaigner with the Wilderness Committee. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hi, Peter. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Brian Lilly is also on the line. He's a political columnist with the Toronto Sun. Hi, Brian. Hey, Mike. Good to talk to you. Thanks, guys, for coming on. Brian, let me go to you first. When you hear this, this uh, phrase here, the Great Reset, what is that to you? What is this? Exactly what you described. It's from the World Economic Forum, one of these bodies that um, politicians like to go and rub elbows with uh, other politicians from around the world, along with, yes, the corporate elite. I mean, Bill Gates is there all the time. Uh, you know, Warren Buffett's gone. All, all kinds of folks have gone and rubbed shoulders here. And, and you know, it, it's a little bit between something real coming out of it and uh, pinky in the brain. Uh, you know, what are we going to do tonight, uh, brain? Well, same thing we do every night, try and take over the world. They come up with these grand schemes and grand ideas, and they'll go back to their countries, and sometimes they implement something, sometimes they don't, but they all feel good about themselves. And so the Great Reset came out of the gate very quickly after yeah. the pandemic started and said, ah, Now's our chance. All those things we've been talking about doing, we can do now. Let's use the pandemic. Kind of like the old line, never let a crisis go to waste. Okay, Peter McCartney, your thoughts on the Great Reset. Do you think this is a good idea? I mean, I think it's an acknowledgement from the global elites that the world that they've built is not working for people. Um, you know, these World Economic Forums, all these, uh, you know, rooms in Davos, Switzerland, where um, elites gather to solve the world's problems. They've, they've been doing this for decades, and social movements have been saying, hey, like, the free trade agenda, you know, the economy that you've built for us, um, you know, climate change, these things are hurting people. And, you know, now, after 30 years, you know, after from the uh, battle in Seattle in the 90s all the way to Occupy Wall Street, you know, has finally broken through that, gee, you know, maybe the people that are uh, making decisions about the world need to start taking these concerns seriously because otherwise, you know, people are people are uh, at a breaking point. Okay, so Peter, some people will criticize it though and say this is some sort of international agenda to move the planet onto big government socialism, and including uh, Pierre Poliev. The conservative MPs, the official opposition finance critic, he was on the show here last week. We talked about this great reset thing. He doesn't like it one bit. Here's what he told me. Isn't now the time to focus on the basics of getting people safely back into their jobs, jobs that they had only uh, six or seven months ago uh, to uh, earn incomes, pay taxes, and contribute to their communities. Now is exactly the wrong time to, to use the Canadian economy as a laboratory or a guinea pig to play out the um, experiments 
of international financial elites like the Prime Minister. Okay, Pierre Poli of the Conservative MP on the show last week. So, so Peter McCartney, he's, he's actually got uh, an online petition going against the Great Reset. But what do you think about his thoughts on it? Yeah, you know, I, I all struggled a bit with the decision to come on because I almost don't want to give this idea more credibility than it's worth. You know, he's attaching this kind of nefarious um, means to this when the truth is, you know, global international financial elites have been making decisions about the world for decades now. And Pierre Pilyev, those decisions are working pretty well from him. He's okay with global governance as long as it's run by, you know, companies like Amazon and Facebook and ExxonMobil. Um, you know, we have problems that are at a global scale and they need global solutions. Okay. And, you know, this pandemic has shown us that um, what it's not working. Uh, you know, we have migrant workers uh, catching COVID because of the horrible conditions they're living in, long-term care homes that are failing because of privatization. You know, these things have really laid bare uh, the people who this system has been failing for a long time. And I think okay. that's why now is the opportunity to make some change. Okay. Brian Lilly, your thoughts? Well, first off, I'd say that uh, people in long-term care homes are catching COVID because we know that globally it, it attacks people who are elderly and have underlying conditions. And that's exactly who has become sick with this. It's the exact opposite of H1N1 about a decade ago where it was children uh, such as my own, who were hard hit by it, and the elderly were just fine because it was similar to a, a virus that they had experienced in their younger years. So, you know, attaching privatization to the deaths of people, uh, I, I think, is, is a bit much. As far as, look, it, Peter and I probably agree on more than he likely thought when either one of us were, were coming on in terms of uh, the idea of these folks sitting in a, a, a room in Davos deciding how to run the world is both unwelcome and ridiculous. But let's be honest, these guys follow a soft, mushy corporate socialism that maybe Peter doesn't espouse to, but it is on the mushy corporate left. And, you know, this is not a, uh, a Thatcherism or a Reaganism and, and a drive to the bottom. I mean, the companies that y'all mentioned all support all the right causes and, and give lots of money to it. And they also benefit from uh, systems that uh, were set up to allow China to enter the World Trade Organization, which we all thought would uh, benefit the world and bring China into uh, the mainstream of, uh, of yeah. world, uh, the international community. It didn't work. There are problems with globalism, absolutely. And I, but I don't think that having global governance is the solution. You know, the fact that we didn't have PPE because we had outsourced the manufacturing of all of it to China, I, I think is well, a major problem that was laid bare by this. Okay, let me ask Peter a quick question, then we'll go to a break and we'll take some phone calls too. But Peter, I mean, is that what this is about? It's some sort of fast track to, to global government or, or socialism? Or is this an effort to say, look, we're in the middle of a global pandemic, we've got big problems, here is, here's an opportunity for the world to come together to try and solve them in an effective way. Yeah, you know, I think it's absurd to think that this is part of some grand plan. It kind of sounds like the, you know, Agenda 21 UN conspiracies. Like, this is a aspirational planning document for governments to use uh, to help uh, solve some of the challenges we have that conservatism has no answer for. 
like all of these problems, climate change, systemic racism, the global pandemic, income inequality, I think in the last year, it's really been laid bare that right-wing parties just have no answer for these whatsoever. Okay, what do you say to that, Brian, real quick? Uh, poppycock. <laughs> okay. okay. What's your uh, answer, then? I'll give you the short answer. Oh. Uh, the idea that, uh, okay, first off, these organizations are ineffective. That's why they've never been successful in bringing about their uh, global governance agendas. But the idea that you're going to solve systemic racism by bringing the world community together, as China puts a million Uyghur Muslims in concentration camps, as Saudi Arabia treats their migrant workers worse than anything we can imagine in Canada, that this is the way to, to do it? No, the, the idea that glo- you know, coming together globally with dictatorships and thug groups that put Russia, China, and Cuba on the UN Human Rights Council as an answer is ridiculous. Fix our own problems. Don't okay. look to China, Cuba, and Russia to fix them for us. All right, welcome back to the show as we continue talking about the Great Reset, the World Economic Forum calling for a reset of the post-pandemic global economy. We have our panelists assembled, Peter McCartney from the Wilderness Committee, Brian Lilly, columnist at the Toronto Sun. I wrote a column about this, by the way, for Global News, which I encourage you to check out online. Give me a follow on Twitter. I put the link up there just a few minutes ago, at Mike Smith News on Twitter, S-M-Y-T. H at Mike Smith News on Twitter. You'll find my latest column on this for Global News. Okay, let's take a few calls in the open line, see what people think. Andrew calling from Surrey. Hi, Andrew. Hey, Mike. Uh, listen, so here's one of the things I don't understand. First of, first of all, your very first com- comment came from somebody who was very cynical about uh, about all these people on, on the left who are trying to make some changes. Uh, just the description of things seemed very unfair and uh but more than anything, I'd like to say to the people on the right there, uh, Mr. Lilly specifically, if, uh, or Mr. Pullivan actually, um, if, uh, if we're not supposed to change direction when we're going slow, how the heck do you expect us to change direction when we're going fast? Okay, market, Brian, and, okay let, me, let me go to Brian Lilly, get his response. Brian, go ahead. I'm not sure what he means by change direction, going fast versus going slow. Well, but I guess he means going slow because of the the pandemic has ground the economy, you know, slowed the economy down around the world. So I guess the argument is this is a good opportunity to make some big changes. Yeah. Oh, okay, but the answer is not always socialism. And we may disagree on the solution. Nobody disagrees that there are problems with poverty, uh, that we need to find solutions. Uh, Peter and I disagree on what the solution is. We don't disagree that there's a problem. We disagree with how to fix it. And, um, you know, Justin Trudeau wants to out-NDP the NDP. He is not the traditional centrist liberal party. Um, He's making it very difficult for Jagmeet Singh to have room on the left. Uh, As someone whose family came from a socialist country and lived with something like council housing, and you only got jobs when the government gave them to you, you know, that's not something that I want to aspire to in this country. We've never had it, and I don't think we should. Okay, Peter McCartney, what do you say to that? I mean, the idea that Justin Trudeau is proposing socialism for Canada is just so absurd to me. Like, um, you know, he is, he is proposing uh, the most liberal center-of-the-road strategy, and the reason that he's kind of moving into NDP territory is because it's popular. Two-thirds of Canadians want action on climate change despite the economic crisis that we're in. Two-thirds of Canadians believe there's systemic racism within the RCMP. He is moving where Canadians are moving because, you know, the Liberals are political weather vanes. 
And so, you know, when you're trying to override that as the Conservatives, I just think they're going to be left out in the wind. Okay, interesting. Let's take another call here on the open line. Frank in Vancouver. Hi, Frank. Hi, I have a couple of questions for the panelists. Uh, first of all, for Peter, why are you? Why does it seem your sort of movement is always so against individual success and no, no individual responsibility? And what's wrong with someone uh, dreaming to want to be a billionaire? And for Brian, do you think the reset movement would stifle uh, entrepreneurship and innovation? Okay, let me go to. Let's go to uh, Peter first. Peter. You know, I, I think, first of all, you, let's see how individual responsibility is working out in my home province of Alberta right now in the face of the COVID-19 pandemic. We need government to actually function properly to solve the big challenges of the problems today. Um, but the other thing, you know, aspiring to be a billionaire is fine, but a society that produces billionaires is a sick society. The only reason that you're able to get that much money is if you're exploiting workers and exploiting the environment. You know, that, that meat that you're buying at Costco is cheap because it's destroying the Amazon rainforest and, um, you know, packing meat, uh, meat packing workers into plants where they can get COVID. The, a society that produces billionaires is not functioning properly. And that, what I'm trying to say is that we need a government that functions to keep those excesses of uh, the profit motive in check. Okay, Brian Lilly, what do you say to that? Uh, I think that you know that the reset agenda, if Im- implemented, would impede entrepreneurship, and it would. Uh, but, but I'm not sure it would stop uh, billionaires because you know oppressive government-run states like China create an awful lot of billionaires. As far as Costco being filled with meat that destroys the rainforest, uh, Peter, come armed with facts next time. Costco sells Alberta beef from your home province. Last I checked, there isn't an Amazon rainforest down in High River. So, you know, it's nice to throw out these uh, vague generalities the way the prime minister does, but there's got to be facts behind it. Um, China produces the most billionaires today. It's not a capitalistic society. Is it pure communism? No, but it is authoritarianism, which is where you end up when you head down uh, this type of uh, an agenda. Okay, Peter, I'll give you 30 seconds to wrap up, and then sadly we're out of time, but go ahead. I mean, uh, I care about human rights, and I'm as anti-authoritarian as you can get. Um, But the idea that somehow proposing, you know, modest liberal reforms to tackle some of the problems that we have today is just an inherent road to communism is just absolutely ridiculous.